Hello, everybody. Today, we're going to look at some questions which our clients have raised with us from time to time. And some of these questions are fairly practical and some of them are more complicated. So the first one is a relatively simple question, and that is, how long does it take to execute transaction instructions? Uh, that's a good question, Ian. Really, transactions um, should be done immediately you receive them. So it if it's an equity-based investment, a share, then it should be done within three or four minutes if, if somebody has instructed you to uh, sell something. If it is uh, a, an investment trust, it's the same. For a managed fund, it's normally lunchtime when the deals are struck at 12 o'clock. Uh, there are a few unit trust companies which are 10 o'clock. And for some of the offshore uh, managed funds, then there can be different timings. But we are obliged by the regulator's rules to do what's called best execution and we have to endeavor to get things done as quickly as possible you are not allowed to sit on things and find something in your pocket three days later and think oh, i better do it we we have to act as soon as we're instructed to do so duncan thank you for that sometimes you will say to a client because you say it to me oh i'll have to record this conversation can you explain why that might be the case uh, yes, the regulator has insisted now for a couple of years that all telephone calls where instructions are given are recorded and are then retained on file to avoid any doubt if there are any queries in the future. So we have to record all of our, our phone calls for that purpose. Now, those doubts could either be whether or not you received the instruction to sell or you've made a recommendation to buy. Could it also be that the recordings are there to check that if you're recommending to buy, that what you're recommending complies with your arrangements with your client in terms of their risk profile? Yes, Ian, you're absolutely right. Over the years, sadly, there have been occasions where instructions have uh, been misunderstood. Thankfully, that hasn't been with us because... Our clients are always speaking to a qualified individual and we are all aware of the importance of getting things done as quickly as possible. That has been instilled into me since I was uh, I started working. The reason the regulators brought in the recordings is that um, it's more evidence as to whether the instructions were given correctly and were acted on correctly. And if, say... Uh one of your professional competitors has a client who's dissatisfied, how would they go about pursuing a complaint using this recorded information with their advisors? If anyone is dissatisfied, they should always complain to the, uh, to, to the firm they've been dealing with in the first instance, and then they will review all the recordings, etc. And then they will report back and there is a set process for that. And if they're still dissatisfied, then they can go to the ombudsman and make an official complaint. I believe that the recordings have got to then be released so people can then judge as to who's in the right and who's in the wrong. Thank you. My next question, Duncan, is that if I instruct you to sell something, could be an individual share or several shares in several companies or a fund, how quickly would I get my money? Uh, it depends on what you're selling in. If you are selling an equity-based investment, and remember the stock market opens at 8 and closes at 4.30, so you've got to give the instructions within those hours and not just before 4.30. 
then the proceeds become available within 48 hours. And we, if necessary, we will chaps the funds to the client the same day. Uh, There is a small charge for that. That also includes investment trusts. Unit trusts are different. Some managed funds are different. And it typically takes about four days to do that. So normally, if we where we liquidate a portfolio because somebody wants to buy a house or uh, because they've died, then the proceeds are available usually after five working days and can be transferred immediately if necessary. So how does an investor, Duncan, holding through your nominee arrangement, know how the companies in his portfolio or her portfolio are performing, given that your client no longer receives annual reports from the companies involved? Uh, it's a good question. In I mean, it, it, that is what clients are paying us to do. And we monitor these holdings all the time. We receive the annual reports and we look at the annual reports or we, we retrieve them off the internet. We study their half yearly results, their full year results and any other news. Uh, so really, that is what our client is paying us to do. The Annual reports are available to everybody as companies publish them on their um, on their websites. John, Williams Investment Management are looking after investments which they have recommended for clients some time ago in foreign companies. Certainly in recent times, you have been advising me to purchase shares or more shares in American or European-based companies. When you are considering the timing of buying or selling or holding these investments, in addition to the share price at the time of buying or selling, do you factor in exchange rates? No, I don't think as a general rule that we do. If sterling happens to have uh, strengthened in in the recent past, that would be to your advantage if you were buying a foreign quoted equity. Once you've bought it, if sterling then weakened, it would be to your advantage because it would translate back into uh, into a slightly higher value in sterling. But I think it's fair to say that exchange rates would have to be extreme for the exchange rate to have, or exchange rate movements, I should say, would have to be extreme for us to uh, decide that we perhaps wouldn't do it or would do it. We look upon it as as just an investment, and um, the fact that there is an exchange rate introduces uh, a slight element of it could be extra cost, but it may work the other way for you. So I think the the general answer to that is no. We're we're looking at that company and, and the reasons as to why we wish to own it. And so basically, the question of the exchange rate matters far more to a speculator than an investor. Yes. And of course, we, we we don't speculate. So it's just one of those things that may work for you. It may work against you. But the most important thing is that company and its prospects and why we why we want to to own it. And it really doesn't matter whether it's quoted in euros or Danish kroner or, 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 or sterling. In the case of, say, Nestle, people will be eating Kit Kats in a year just as they were eating them five years ago. And it's made no difference to the quality of the investment in Nestle that the Swiss franc can go up and down. Yes, and a business as large as that 
if you want to start talking about exchange rates, I mean, we're talking about exchange rates now when we're simply talking about the sterling Swiss franc exchange rate uh, with regard to actually buying the shares. But if you want to sort of look under the bonnet and see what's going on in Nestle, the exchange rates of all those businesses, all the things they buy, all the things they sell in all the territories that they operate in, suddenly the, the concept of exchange rates goes to a whole different level. So the fact that it, we happen to be here in the UK and our functioning currency is sterling and Nestle happens to be headquartered in Switzerland and uses the Swiss franc for reporting purposes, in reality, it is but a tiny, tiny fraction of what you really would need to think about if you if you were bringing exchange rates into into the equation thank you john that's very interesting so in the current climate what proportion of a portfolio would you recommend be um, invested outside the uk I don't think that uh, we would ever look at that as a, as a fixed percentage or a number. Again, it comes back to businesses that we wish to own. Having said that, businesses that have significant overseas exposure, it does bring a source of sensible diversification. And if a business, for example, like uh, Nestle or indeed Unilever, which gets something like 60% of its sales from developing markets, uh, to us, that is the kind of profile that, that adds grist to the mill. And so the, re the recent, recent situation in Afghanistan, which may have caused a ripple in stock market valuations, generally, how do things like that affect your strategy? Yeah, I'd, I would like to add the fact that, in my opinion, these geographical sort of allocations, which have been around for 20, 30, 40 years, are a red herring. It really doesn't matter how much you have in any one company, what oh, country, sorry, what you are really looking at is the quality of the underlying companies you're investing in. And it just happens that Nestle is domiciled in Switzerland. It happens that Unilever is domiciled in uh, the Netherlands and in, in the UK. It really doesn't make any difference. Both are, are first-class companies and are worthy of investing for investment for certain clients. Now, I'm aware that some of the companies which are quoted on the UK Stock Exchange appear to be personal fiefdoms of the major investor. What are your thoughts about advising your clients to buy shares in companies that are very much seem to be a personality cult? I think as a general rule, family-run businesses are very often fertile grounds for investment. So, for example, I quite I, I like partnering with the with the Nichols family who own who own Vimto. They've controlled it for over a hundred years, and uh, you can see that what is good for the Nichols is is good for minority shareholders. So. Family shareholdings, very often, their stewardship of businesses through generations, they take very long-term decisions. And that's something that, as a general rule, um, is, is, is attractive. Uh, but I don't think that necessarily is what, when you were talking about personality cults, I can think of several businesses that have been quoted, but as you say, are, are perhaps the personal fiefdom of uh, either their creator 
or they have managed to gain control of the business and um, their, their, their behavior is somewhat erratic. So I would say that that is the kind of situation that uh, is not attractive to our style of, uh, of investment. But one can see this, all the signs are there. And uh, it's whether you find that situation attractive or whether you think that that person is, is an individual that overall is going to act in the overall best interests of all shareholders. So um, whether it's maybe a US tech billionaire or whether it's, as I say, there the are numerous examples of, of, of quoted UK companies, uh, that situation is generally not going to be one that we would find attractive. And it's, it's the kind of situation we would look at as being different to family controlled businesses where their stewardship over many, many decades has been a very positive thing. But basically, you are indicating that you don't like brash organisations. Successful businesses can often result from the, the entrepreneurial behaviour of, of, of the individuals that created them. But when they become quoted, in some cases, that is not necessarily what they need, i.e. that rash entrepreneurial behaviour. Maybe they need something... Uh, slightly different once they become quoted vehicles. And of course, if that dominant shareholder is still at the reins, then it can lead to behavior that is not necessarily what we're looking for. So as businesses pass through various stages, uh, they need different styles of management in order to get the ball rolling and to um, tech businesses are perhaps the, be the, 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 most, uh, the most obvious examples. That's what they need. But once they become quoted, you need some sort of sensible governance, which doesn't mean that you want to be burdened with committees and uh, long lines of decision making. That's absolutely what you don't want. But you, you, you would hope that those short decision lines were still there and that entrepreneurial behavior was still there. But perhaps shorn of the um, maverick uh, intentions and, and, and operating style of, um, of their founder, which not always is necessarily beneficial, I would argue. And is, is this because the, the founder wants to carry on running the business as he did when it was a private company, but decided to cash in some shares, but doesn't feel comfortable with the new regulatory levels of public companies? There's a conflict there of, of, of attitude, isn't there? Yes, uh, that, that, that could well be the case, absolutely. They could have floated their business uh, or floated a minority stake. It puts a valuation on their stake. And actually, it doesn't necessarily, they don't lose too much by doing that. They, they get a valuation for their stake and they can still, if they choose, carry on doing exactly what they did before. Uh, best of both worlds for them perhaps the worst of all wills for, for minority shareholders. Thank you, John. The next question is, gentlemen, oil. Where do you think we're going with oil? What's the future? Uh, I believe that oil prices are going to stay quite perky. As oil is, has become almost the new tobacco, there is ever less incentive for oil companies to go out and find new sources. But the world is going to be running on oil for quite some time, and definitely the, uh, the developing world will be, which means that 
oil prices or oil demand, I think, will still stay at levels that, it, that we're seeing now, if not more, as economic growth continues in places like the Far East. But with no real incentive to go out and find new supplies, you know, the laws of supply and demand will work in ways that we all know that they will. So I don't believe that uh, over the next decade, oil is going to disappear. I think oil is going to stay relatively high in price. And that is going to be inflationary for those countries that don't have access to oil. So it's not a great, the, the, the demonization of oil is something that uh, is going to have, or is going to bring problems in my view. And the valuation of oil companies, as they, as they are in general slipping away, and more and more institutional investors won't invest in them, you've got a situation where if what I have just outlined comes to pass, they're going to be uh, very profitable businesses, but they're not going to be highly rated businesses. So I don't believe that oil is suddenly going to disappear. And, you know, when you look at countries that do have oil, like Malaysia, for example, um, they're going to keep burning it and they're going to keep selling it to the likes of the Chinese. You know, the Russians produce it as well. The Saudis, they are going to do the same thing because their economies are heavily dependent upon it. So this obsession with a reduction in fossil fuel usage, which is going on uh, in the West, I don't think you're going to see that everywhere. And uh, for all these reasons, I think oil is going to stay quite perky. Yes, because people confuse oil with just putting petrol in their cars, don't they? I mean, oil yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, I've, I've, it's, it's in everything. Absolutely. You know, I'm sure you'll find various bits of plastic in your iPhone or you know, in your Peloton bike or, or, or whatever. So the ability to substitute different materials for these is, is decades away, in my view. So I think you're looking at actually a very difficult situation with oil in that no incentive really to go and find more. It's difficult to get financing or more difficult than it otherwise would do. You have increasing amounts of uh, institutional investors who don't want to invest in oil. And yet, the if, if I'm half right, the medium term profitability, in fact, beyond that of, of, of oil businesses, established oil businesses, I think will be underwritten. So I don't believe that oil is going to disappear or fossil fuel usage, perhaps coal is one thing, but oil and gas, I think they're going to be around for quite some time. I mean, for example, if you're going to have air travel, how are you going to power a 747? You're going to need that hugely efficient energy source that at the moment only fossil fuels can, can deliver. And even the pedals on the peloton bike need lubricating, don't they? They do. Yes, they do. I think the last thing to say about oil is that the drive to environmentally friendly, reduced greenhouse gases policy comes at a price. And you're already seeing that come through with the price of domestic fuel, electricity, gas, because it has to be sourced more ethically now. It is going up in cost. And this is the tip of the iceberg of seeing where all these costs are going to go. This material should not be considered as advice or an investment recommendation. Investors should seek advice from an advisor regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority prior to making investment decisions. 
All investments carry a degree of risk. The value of investments and any income from them can go up as well as down, and you may not get back the amount originally invested. Information contained in this podcast was true at the time of recording.